Wow, what an introduction. Um, I think it'll take a way maker, miracle worker to get Dave to dance because I tried to get him to dance out there and it was just, uh, yeah, not a sight you want to behold. <laughs> well, a couple of disclaimers, um, even as I begin, we say that you Americans have this thing called the chronometer. We Africans have the time. So this could go on and on and on. So brace yourself. But I promise you I'll be done as soon as I'm finished. <laughs> Another disclaimer is that a lot of Western cultures are linear thinkers. You know, you guys like one point, two points, three points. You know, you kind of linear thinkers. And that's how you bring coherence. For us as Africans, we talk in circles. We just talk around and around and nobody really lands a point. So you guys will have to find yourself somewhere even as we begin, but it's truly an honor to be here with you. Africans are known to be storytellers, so if you'd allow me, I'll start with a story. In a little village in Africa, there was a young man who lived by this incredibly majestic mountain. And every day, this young man would get up, get on his knees, and then face the mountain as was customary to people in this village, and he would pray to the creator of the mountain. You see, the people in that village were enamored by this majestic, beautiful mountain with its snow-capped tops and its lush green foothills that they thought this mountain must have some creative power, and so they prayed to the owner of the mountain. A little while later, some Scottish missionaries left their comfort zone in Scotland from freezing land, and they made their way to this African village. And what was um, uncommon for people like that in that day, they hit the ground listening, and they hit the ground observing. And then they noticed this custom that these people in the village were doing, and they inquired, why do you do this? And the Africans got to explain to them about the majesty, the beauty, and the mystical wonder that they had. And then it dawned on the Scottish missionaries. What an opportunity to tell them about the story of the creator of the mountain. So as you can imagine, the missionaries told the Africans and the people in the village about the story of the Bible. Our young man was so excited about this that he decided to travel with a missionary so that they can tell everybody about the story of the creator of the mountain and the story of the gospel. This young man became one of the first chefs for these missionaries who set up a camp in that place. The young man had 12 kids and he raised his 12 kids according to the ways of God. Yes, we Africans take quite literally, multiply, and fill the earth. One of the young man's sons became a pastor who, who served and as a Presbyterian minister in that country for many years. That pastor's son became a missionary. And he went to, he went to the ends of the earth... Therefore, bringing full circle what the Scottish missionaries had begun. The young man 
The, 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 the young man who went away to the ends of the earth is the voice that you're listening to this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce you to my grandpa, the young man in the village. This is a picture of him. That's him and I and my cousin in the village many years ago. A faithful man. The next picture is one of my dad, a man who served faithfully in Kenya as a Presbyterian pastor. And he just died three years ago and I miss him dearly. Friends, missions has come full circle. The name of one of the missionaries who made their way to my grandfather's village, his name is Harrison. Guess what my first name is? Harrison. I am named after Harrison from Scotland. Missions has come full circle. Little did Harrison from Scotland know that I would be in Orange County, California as a missionary and married to the whitest girl in the world from South Dakota Delta who's here with me and together you know what you get when you get a Kenyan and a South Dakotan you get a Kendakotian so we have the only Kendakotian in the world there she is Willow Creek this is your legacy you have given you have sent you have served you have invested in the global world. And today you get a glimpse of what happens when missions comes full circle. Could you celebrate what God has done through the legacy of Willow Creek Church? Come on. And here's the good news. And mark my words or read my lips because some of you can't understand the words that are coming out of my mouth because of my accent. Your best years are yet to come. Your best years are yet to come. The, the best is ahead of you, not behind you. And you ask me, Christian, uh, how do you know that? Well, somewhere I read in 1 Corinthians 2.9, no ear has heard, no eye has seen what God has in store for them that love you. You can't understand what God is going to do with a willow creek that is fully and completely surrendered to him. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned to you that I am in my ends of the earth. And some of you thought, Christian, let us give you some, let, let, let's educate you, Christian. You cannot call Americans the ends of the earth. Don't you know that we are the greatest country in the world? Don't you know we are the center of the world? Don't you know we, this is where everything happens? We got it going on. But let me surprise you. When I read the Bible and when I look at the scriptures from my context and I read about the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations and go out and make disciples, be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Guess where my Jerusalem is as I read my Bible in Kenya? Guess where my Jerusalem is? Nairobi, Kenya. And then my Judea would be probably other counties and other countries around us. Samaria would probably be in the Middle East. And my ends of the earth, my friends, would be Orange County, y'all. <laughs> you see, Americans don't think of themselves as the end of the earth. But our world is changing. Our world is changing. The center of global Christianity has shifted. There was a time in the early 1900s 
82% of global Christianity was in the global north. A hundred, uh, in 1900. In 2020, that completely shifted. Two-thirds of the global Christianity is in the global south and only one-third is up in the northern hemisphere. God is doing an amazing thing in the global south. And that's why you need the global south. It's, it's time for the global south to send missionaries to America and that's why I'm in this country as a missionary. Come on, somebody. <clears throat> and it's said by 2050... 77% of global Christianity will be in the global south. You see Harrison's story from the missionary from Scotland. It not only talks about missions coming full circle, it's also a beautiful picture of compassion and justice. It was compassion that led Harrison and the other missionaries to sacrificially go, maybe even on a one-way ticket to Africa. But it was justice that led them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you know what is the greatest injustice in the world? The greatest injustice in the world is that we have not treated God as we ought to. And so the gospel is the most compelling thing. And so we go out with proclamation and demonstration. Proclamation and demonstration. So as we talk about justice, I have a question for you. Where in the Bible do you read or is it expressly said what God requires of you? My Bible scholars, where does the Bible expressly say what is required of you? Micah 6.8. What does Micah 6.8 say? Here it is. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what, the, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to, hum, and to walk humbly before your God. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly before your God. So what does justice mean? What does justice mean? I want quickly to uh, share two things about justice. One is the meaning of justice and two, the motivation for justice. And then how we respond. What is the meaning of justice? What is the motivation of justice and how do we respond to it? So number one, what is the meaning of justice? I think there's three things that inform us about the meaning of justice. One is what we call equal treatment for all people. Number one, equal treatment for all people. Number two, exclusive and special treatment for a special group of people. And then thirdly, it's the extensive nature of what justice is. So what is equal treatment for all people? Look at what the Bible says in Leviticus 24, 22. It says... You are to have the same law for the foreigner as for the native born, for I am the Lord your God. Now, this was so fascinating because they lived in a time, um, in a time where culture was everything, where tribe was everything, where tradition was everything. And then God, God comes and says, I want racial and social equity for all people. Racial and social equity for all people. This was absolutely mind-blowing. It was astounding. God was calling for them to engage the gap that you find in unjust legal practices, unjust wage practices, paying workers on time and paying them the right amount of time, and unjust business practices. And that's why over and over in the Bible, the Bible disowns this idea of bribery because bribery 
was not fair. It showed partiality because the poor people could not bribe. So God is challenging them. So the first aspect of justice is equal treatment of everybody under the law. But the second definition of justice is special treatment, exclusive and special concern for especially the poor. Look at what the Bible says in Proverbs 31 verse 8 and 9. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Now, most Americans would agree with me. They would say that, yes, equal treatment for all. But some would be challenged by the idea of special treatment and exclusive treatment for, some, for, for especially the poor. But this is expressly said in the Bible. You see, the rich, there is nowhere in the Bible where you find the Bible saying, speak up for the rich. Because the rich don't need somebody to speak up for them, for them. They can speak up for themselves or they can hire people to speak up for them. The Bible calls us to speak up for those who have no voices. This is not about charity. This is about advocacy. Step up. Step into the gap for those who do not have. You see, the Bible talks about the word justice. And every time you see the word justice in the Bible... A certain scholar, Nicholas Walterstorff, says every time you see justice, it's this Hebrew word known as mishpat. And mishpat will usually cover four groups of people. The poor, the orphan, the widow, the refugee. The poor, the orphan, the widow, the refugee. God is calling us to speak up, to stand on behalf, especially of the poor, the orphan, the, the widow, and the refugee. Look at what it says in Zechariah 7, 9. Again, this is not Christian talking. This is God's word. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy. And there's a word, compassion for one another. And do not oppress the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, of the poor, or the poor. There it is. You see, that is what God is calling us, to stand in the gap of the quartet of the vulnerable. One of the places in the Bible that is more salient in this conversation is Isaiah 58. And I know you guys as Americans love lists. So what does justice mean? Here's a list for you because you guys want to keep a list of this. Isaiah 58 verse 6 to 8, it says, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? And here comes the list. To lose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And then the promise comes. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of God will be your rear guard. You see, this is a startling uh, this is a startling statement that God makes. Because if you read Isaiah 58 and verse 2 and 3, you find a group of people that are very ethical, a group of people that are very moral, a group of people that tithe, and they just don't do it once. They do it over and over again. They keep commands. They are eager to know God's ways. So that means they are passionate. They are faithful in their religious observances. But what is startling is that verse 1 of Isaiah 58 says, Declare to my people their rebellion. You see, God is saying, this is not what I've chosen. It's not, it's not this idea of just tithing 
and being morally restrained. It's about being radically transformed from the inside. And it means exclusive and special concern for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the refugee. And what is even more staggering is that he says when you clothe, when you feed, when you take care of the poor wanderer, you know, you're, you're, you're taking care of your own flesh and blood. That is staggering. In a male-dominated culture, in a culture where tribe was everything, where culture was everything, God says that a person of a different race, a person of a different culture, a person of a different religion is your own flesh and blood. That is kind of like saying that when you hear me speaking and I start talking like I'm more Kenyan because there's a time when my accent changes and I become more Kenyan. When you hear somebody talking like that, you say, that is my cousin. <laughs> or maybe if you go to a neighboring country, Uganda, where Ugandans are the most kind people, you just go and talk to the Ugandans, they will tell you they're very kindy, they're very sweetie, they're very interesting people. Yeah? You see the Ugandans over there, they're very good people. Hmm? But when you hear somebody with an Ugandan accent, you say, cousin. Or if you go to a doctor's office and you find this very dignified surgeon who is from India and he tells you namaste and he tells you, you're very welcome. When you come into the surgery, we'll go very good. You say, cousin. Or you go to a BMW store and you find a German engineer named Hans and Hans comes and tells you, guten tag, vielen Dank. Germans are the best in engineering. You know, when you hear that, you go, cousin. Or you go to the bank and you find this wonderful guy named Juan from Mexico. And Juan tells you, Arale, amigo, que pasó? Todo bien? You go, cousin. God is making people from a different race, a different tribe, a different religion. He's making them your cousins. He's making them your own flesh and blood. You see, in Isaiah 58, God is saying, your religious practices don't impress me much. It's how you treat the poor, the orphan, the widow, the marginalized. You see, God does not look at the, your wealth as your own. Because sometimes we say, man, I made everything. Everything I am, I did it. And God says, everything you have, I have given you. And here's an example of that. How many of you in this room chose the sanctuary in which you were born? Put up your hand if you chose the century. All right? How many of you chose the family into which you were born? How many of you chose the place that you were born? You see, if I could choose the place that I was born, I'd have probably chosen 90210. Because I saw it on TV. Or I'd have probably chosen Chicago or Wheaton or Huntley or North Shore or South Lake or one of these wonderful, beautiful willow places. I would have chosen that, but I didn't have any choice. I was born where I was born to the family that I was born to. You see, what God is saying is that there is a major inequitable distribution of wealth from birth. There is a major inequitable distribution of wealth from birth, and therefore, God is calling us to give exclusive and special treatment for people in the margin because your wealth is not your own. It actually belongs to God. A pastor from Sri Lanka, Pastor Adrian Divisa, said this, The pain of poverty isn't hunger. 
The pain of poverty is rejection. When we come close to the poor, and the orphan, the widow, the refugee, they know that they are not rejected by God. Mahatma Gandhi said that the world has enough resources for every man's need, but not enough for one man's greed. God is saying to you and to me, if you don't care about the poor, you don't really have a relationship with me. And that is startling. And you see, so that's, you're called to have equal treatment for all under the law, a special and exclusive treatment for the poor. But thirdly, is an extensive nature. And the extensive nature of justice is this. It's relief, it's reinforcement, it's reform. Relief, reinforcement, reform. What is relief? When somebody is hungry, you feed them. When somebody is naked, you clothe them. When somebody is thirsty, you give them something to drink. Willow, you have done that in the pandemic, and I just want to thank you and bless God. Can you celebrate for how much you have done in this season? But God calls us to move from relief and engage reinforcement. And reinforcement is where we support people so that they can stand on their own. It's not just about giving a handout. It's about giving a hand up so that people can support themselves. So we move from relief, we move into development or what we call reinforcement. And ultimately, you get into a third stage, which is called reform. And reform is what Isaiah 58 says, break the yoke. We not only help the families, we change the families. We not only go and help the schools, we change those schools. You change the social systems that bring the injustice in the first place. God is calling us to break the fangs of injustice in the world. So you see, that's the extensive nature. A good example of that would be the Good Samaritan. If the Good Samaritan went and just helped the person on the road and gave them water to drink and give them something, uh, was able to help them medically, that person would have done relief. But the Good Samaritan did not only do that. He went and took this guy in to the inn and had him uh, uh, pay for, the, pay for the, his stay and said, I will come back. So he applied himself. It's not just a one-time thing. He gave of his time. Most Americans will give you of their money, but they'll not give you of their time because it's our most expensive commodity. But reinforcement calls us to give of our time, our talent, and our treasure. So he helps this, this, this man uh, uh, get some recovery. Reform is going back to the road on Jericho and finding out why are people being killed on that road and reforming the system, maybe putting security lights, maybe putting law enforcement in that place. That's the extensive journey of justice. We've been called to do not one, but all three. And Willow, I have to affirm you, you have done this and you will only continue to do it in the future. <clears throat> Ultimately, what is the motivation for justice? Now, you can do justice out of guilt and shame, but that never lasts. The motivation of justice is compassion. There's two reasons as to why we, we need to engage in justice. And the first reason is this. God identifies with the poor. God identifies with the poor. Look at what it says in Psalm 146. It says this. Verse 6 to 9. He is the maker of the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. 
The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner, sustains the fatherless, the widow, but he frustrates the wicked. God identifies with the poor. Look at what he says in Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 19. This is God's word. For the Lord your God is, a, is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribe. He defends, watch this, the, the quartet of the vulnerable, the, he, he, the cause of the fatherless, fatherless, the widow, he loves the foreigner residing amongst you, giving them food, clothing, and you are to love the foreigners who are with you because you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Over and over again, God identifies himself with the poor. And friends, that's why we never treat the poor poorly. We never treat the poor poorly. Mother Teresa said this. Mother Teresa said this. Every day we encounter Jesus cleverly disguised as the poor. And if you want to understand that, just listen to Pastor Dave's story last week of how he was scammed by somebody. That's what God does every day. We, we meet Jesus cleverly disguised as the poor. You see, Willow, you need the poor more than the poor need you. You need the poor more than the poor need you. And you ask me how and why. It's with the poor. It's with the margins. You heard the stories of the people who are here or the stories that Willow has been involved with. When you talk to those people, you will find a deep sense of faith. You will have a deep sense of resilience, a deep sense of joy that is devoid of circumstances. You see, it's in, it's in the margins, it's in the global world that you will find this deep desire for dependence and also a deep desire for celebration. Today, Matt and the team led us in a wonderful African song. And I was wondering, man, when are these guys going to ever start dancing? Because when you hear, oyo, 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 you know what Africans would do? We'd start dancing. We'd not even stop. But y'all are the frozen chosen. So you need us. You need us to teach you how to dance. Because guess what? That's what we're going to be doing forever. So you guys are in trouble. Unless you learn from the global south. You need the poor more than the poor need you. My favorite theologian happens to be my grandma. My grandma was illiterate. She couldn't read or write. Couldn't read or write. But she heard God's word and maintained it. But we would tell grandma things like this. We would tell grandma, grandma, can we give you shoes? And grandma would go like, why are you trying to give me shoes? Let me walk on the dust that I was created from so that I can know that I'm going back to dust. Don't comfort me with the comforts of this world that are not eternal. We tell grandma, grandma, can we pull water and put it in your home, in your house? She says, why do you want to do that? I want to take my pail of water, go to the river, share with people at the river about the love of God, and then take the water, which is a symbol of life, and I want to carry it on my head and take it back home so that I can be reminded of how Christ carried the cross for me daily. From an illiterate woman who died with a hunch and our webbed feet. But I've never read that in any theological book in the West. We need the poor as much as the poor need us. God does not only associate with the poor, he becomes poor. God does not only associate with the poor, identify with the poor, he becomes poor. The King of kings and the Lord of lords became poor so that we who are spiritually poor can become eternally rich. Amen.
we who are eternally poor can become eternally rich. Jesus is born into poverty. He is raised in obscurity. He is born in a manger. He eats from a feed trough. He is born to poor parents who, when he was being circumcised, give two pigeons, which was the least amount of sacrifice that a poor family could give. At the end of his life, Jesus rides in on a borrowed donkey. He eats his last meal on a borrowed room. He is, he is, he is, he is buried in a borrowed tomb. At the end of his life, Jesus has nothing. And even the very robe that he had was divided. They cast lots for it. You see, he faced the ultimate mistrial, mistrial, miscarriage of justice. Jesus, who deserved vindication, got condemnation so that we who deserve condemnation could be vindicated. And that's why... That's the motivation for justice. Motivation for justice is not rules and regulation and, and, and rituals. It is about looking at the Son of God and the cross and saying, knowing that he did it all for us. God does not come to bring the vengeance of... Jesus does not come to bring the vengeance of God. He comes to bring the vindication of God. You see, Jesus did not come to only stand by us. He did not only come to stand with us. He came to stand for us so that we never have to wonder where we stand with him. You never know what happens when you give your two fish and your five loaves. You never know what will happen. I'll end with this story. At the end of my high school, my parents wanted to send me to law school. They thought I talked too much. And they said you could use your mouth and make some money by becoming a lawyer. I just wanted to become a soccer player or what we call football. You know the ball that you kick with your leg? Not the egg that you guys throw with your hand and you call that football. That is hand egg. It's not football. It's the one, that's all I wanted to be. But my parents wanted to send, me to send me to law school in India, but they had no money. So what they did is that they called the church on one day and they raised a one-time fees and one-way one ticket to India for me to go to school. And they said, son, God has provided, now go. At the end of that semester, my money ran out. God raised a beautiful woman from Bakersfield, California to pay the rest of my school fees. And I graduated five years later with my law degree because Gladys Upperson from Bakersfield, California gave Jesus her two fish and five loaves. And because of that, I am here today. Gladys had no idea. Gladys had no idea that I would be doing what I'm doing today. You take your two fish five loaves, give them to Jesus, he'll take them, he'll bless them, he'll break them, he'll give them out, and you never know what will happen. Willow, this is your legacy. When you act justly, when you love mercy, and you walk humbly with, before your God, it changes the world. And this is what will happen with a willow that is fully committed to him to go with the love of God across the tracks, across the streets, and across the seas. Let us pray. Father, you're a good God and you're a loving God. Thank you that you are in control of our lives. And thank you that God, you use ordinary people like an 84-year-old woman, Gladys, to stand with us. And God, that reminds us that you have always been there with us. That God, you've called us to have equal treatment for all. Exclusive treatment for the poor extensive 
nature of justice and God to be motivated by the fact that you who was rich became poor for us. And so God, we move on and we engage not from a place of moral, a morally restrained heart, from, but from a radically transformed heart. God, I pray that, Father, when we see you on the cross, we shall tell you, God, boss us. Boss my time. Boss my talent. Boss everything that I have and take control. So, God, would you use Willow to continue being a light on a hill that cannot be hidden and the salt and the light of the world. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's children shall say, Amen. Amen.